From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, in the wake of the Paris pullout, a call for citizen investors. Millennials speak out on sustainability and Trump. The world-changing impact of net-zero buildings and changing shipping pallets for the long haul. We're delivering the goods this week on 350. This episode is sponsored by NRG, where powering companies forward starts with a revolutionary idea of looking at companies. From here, energy goals are identified and used to drive a successful energy solution. For more information, please visit nrg.com greenbiz. It's June 9th, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and with me is GreenBiz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. Uh, it's uh, another amazing week, uh, just current <laughs> events and, and sustainability events. But another thing I want to just get right into, because it's just, uh, frankly, impressing the heck out of me, is this this somewhat grassroots movement that's just uh, uh, emerged and blossomed that we're still in. Um, I, you know, this is the response, of course, to Trump's announcement that the U.S. was drawing from with Paris Agreement and the hundreds of mayors and states and companies and universities that issued statements or signed pledges to continue the progress on climate change with or without the federal government. Yep, yep. On the on the day of that announcement, I wrote about uh, the 60 or so cities that had pledged to ignore the president maybe. And I by by like 3 days later it was up over 200. I think it's was over 240. So I was it was amazing to hear all of these cities saying, "You know what? That doesn't make sense to us. We really need to do this. So, hi, Paris. We're over here. We're 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 ready. We're willing. We're waiting. Um, not waiting, actually. We're 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 moving. We're we're acting. Yeah, and if you go to wearestillin.com, it's basically a one-page website with all the signatories, the signatories of this open letter to the international community, and from U.S. cities, states, and local business leaders, and. You could just scroll through it and see. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's over nine hundred companies, which is really uh, really amazing. A lot of big ones and and uh, a lot of smaller ones as well. That's just it's just really heartening. And, and then of course, a lot of this was led by Mike Bloomberg, former New York mayor, who serves as the United Nations Special Envoy for Cities and Climate Change. Uh, who not only I think really spur, spearheaded this, but his foundation, the Bloomberg Philanthropies, pledged up to fifteen million dollars to the United Nations that would oversee implementation of the agreement and cover a portion of the operating costs the United States would have paid. And then you got MacArthur Foundation, Hewlett, Rockefeller, McKnight, Goldman Foundations, uh, all made statements with varying degrees of disappointment, regret, and condemnation, that, uh, and a lot of them are, are, are kicking in. It's really quite an impressive feat. And then, of course, there's California. Yeah, yep, California. So Governor Jerry Brown over in China, making some very bold commitments to, to help develop technology, <laughs> especially in, in the Chinese market. So basically, I guess they're, they're, they're saying, hey, we see that China is going to show leadership and we want to be in on that. We want to help them innovate. We want to help them make this happen. So that, that was at the Clean Energy Ministerial this week in, in China. Yeah. yeah. And, and Governor Brown and the Chinese president uh, signed a non-binding pact to support uh, their mm-hmm. respective green goals uh, around energy, clean energy, carbon capture and storage, and just environmental protection in general. You know, and it's it's and then they're they're going to work on things like zero emission vehicles, energy storage, a grid modernization, and low carbon urban development. Really, don't want to say that Trump's move may be the best thing to happen to climate change because it's it's still scientifically, economically, and morally wrong, but. You know, that may be the best thing that ever happened to climate change in terms of just galvanizing this movement sort of out of nowhere. I mean, I, I mean, it was poised in a certain way, but this organization and this coalition that sort of emerged didn't exist uh, a week ago or 10, day, 10 days ago. 
And that's kind of impressive. Yeah. And, you know, I love that, that observation about the local level grassroots movement, uh, just because I think in, in, in some respects, the media, I'm going to, I'm going to point to the mainstream media has kind of failed in getting the public to pay, you know, the general public, if you will, the average citizen to really understand and pay attention to this. But now at the local level, the city, city level, if your mayor is talking about this, you can't help but take notice, right? If your governor is talking about this, you ha- can't help but take notice. And I think it's going to be a great thing for visibility. Um, I, you know, I, I would, we would be remiss if we didn't mention some of the other states aside from California, because California was one of um, 10 states so far that have joined what's being called the U.S. Climate Alliance, right, that the, the state level support for the Paris Accord. And the other, other states involved are Washington, New York, Minnesota, Virginia, Massachusetts, Vermont, Hawaii. Wow, they actually even signed legislation, the first one to commit to the goals and the limits of the accord. And, and I have to call attention to the op-ed that ran a couple days ago in the New York Times, uh, a joint uh, op-ed by the mayors of Pittsburgh and Paris titled, We Have Our Own Climate Deal. Um, it, nothing new here, but it was just, again, another sort of uh, thumbing of nose at the administration with these two mayors coming together and saying, no, we are all in, we are admiring each other, we are, uh, you know, in effect, having a conversation we might not have had otherwise. And I think I follow Eric Rostin, uh, who um, uh, runs uh, basically the climate coverage for, for Bloomberg, Bloomberg News, and uh, he did a great tweet uh, a week ago right after the, uh, the announcement by the White House, which I loved. He said, Everyone talking about climate change is a nice preview of what it'll be like when everyone talks about climate change. (laughs) (laughs) We really did get a conversation going, and we'll be watching that very closely, obviously, over the coming weeks, months, and years. But for now, let's watch closely uh, the Week in Review. Sticking with Paris a moment, uh, the the case for business investment is so strong, it keeps getting stronger. There was a great op-ed by uh, Puck, your co-author Mark Mickleby, um, the the co-founder of Long Haul Capital Group, and uh, definitely a great thinker on on the investment opportunities associated with fighting climate change, assaulting climate change. And and I love the picture he painted of post-World War II and, and, and the sort of the imperative and the industrial investment in helping rebuild the future, right? Um, and, and sort of making the case that it's time for us to think about this situation, this time in our, in our life as a way of investing in the future. Walkable communities, you know, making sure that people have an opportunity to fight climate change by simply not getting in their car, right? <laughs> getting from place to place. Um, but right now, so much of our suburban landscape is is drivable, is you're forced to drive. The opportunities for agriculture, um, how do we increase the food supply? What are the technologies and investments? So I love, again, I, I love the thinking that's coming out around this Paris Declaration, the positive thinking, right? It's, it would be so easy to keep bemoaning the short-sightedness of that decision, but I love the fact that there's so much uh, talk about investment. Yeah, and that's, of course, the, uh, the whole thesis of of the book that Patrick Doherty and I wrote last year called The New Grand Strategy. Hell, I haven't plugged it on this program for a while, so why not? There you go. <laughs> um, and, it's, and it's about really uh, how do we leverage the economy to address a whole range of social, economic, security, and environmental issues and um, engage in what, what Puck in this piece calls a trillion-dollar-plus investment opportunity that can fundamentally rewire the U.S. economy, tapping, as you said, these three huge pools of demand for walkable communities, regenerative agriculture, and resource productivity. And, you know, he uses a line here that he uses a lot on stage and in the, in, in the book, looking at what happened at the end of world, both in the run-up to and then after World War II, there were very different exercises, but how we leverage the economy to build and grow the country in so many ways. He says, That kind of leadership reminds us that the very first words of the Constitution are we the people of the United States. 
they're not waiting on Washington. I think that we are still in, as, as, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, a classic case of, of we the people not waiting on Washington. So uh, I think this is really interesting. And, and, and to, the, to the point of the, of the title of, of after the Paris exit, a call for citizen investors, Mickleby writes, just as citizen soldiers traditionally answer the nation's call during wartime, we need citizen investors to answer our nation's call today and pursue this economic opportunity by pushing capital toward a new investment category, what he calls strategic impact investments. Um, and so we need a private sector long-term investment strategy to dedicate money to this category of not just infrastructure, but energy, connectivity, manufacturing, food networks, and all of that, so that we can rebuild the bedrock of a new 21st century American economy. Yep. And as far as lo low carbon goes, right, so we're talking about building the economy, we're talking about low carbon investments and innovation and, and, and so forth. There's another great story that pertained to this on the site this week, uh, how net zero buildings positively impact the world, right? We talk a lot about carbon reduction strategies, and we know that buildings are the one of the big culprits. I forget what the, the statistics are. Joel, do you remember how much, what is it, they, they, the footprint of, of buildings in general? Well, the, the energy footprint um, is, uh, well, the carbon footprint is about 40%. And the estimates range a little bit, but that's, but I think it's about a quarter of, of all energy uses in buildings. Yeah, so we talk a lot about net zero, right? What is a net zero building? 100% of the project's energy needs being supplied by an on-site renewable energy on a net annual basis. Um, that's how the International Living Future Institute defines it. Um, this, we ran a, an excerpt from a, a book about this concept on the site earlier this week, and it just reminded me of, of again, the potential for us to think differently about how buildings are, are constructed, where we put them, what we expect them to do. Do the windows open? Do they close? How, what energy source should be used for it? Um, are we building this, this structure within our means, right? Does it make sense for this community? It was a sort of a, a reminder that this conversation, which actually, frankly, you know, it's kind of been a little bit quiet because of all the other noise, if you will. But um, it does present one of the most dramatic opportunities um, beyond just all these green building certifications we've seen. I, I believe that um, maybe we're, we'll start hearing uh, more about the movement for buildings that, that contribute to this in an automated way. Yeah, just because it's been quiet doesn't mean nothing has been happening. In fact, quite, quite a bit's been happening. And, and what's interesting, just to put this in perspective, I, I will maintain that net zero impact buildings are kind of a way station. In terms of where we're headed, and if you think about sort of the trajectory, we start off with green buildings, which are buildings that, frankly, do less bad. Uh, they're you know use less energy and have fewer toxic materials and and things like that. Use less water, etc. Um, to net zero buildings, where that they, as you said, make all their own gravy, all their own energy, and and maybe recycle water and things like that too restorative buildings, which is really where this is all going, buildings that that actually provide a lot of the ecosystem services that used to exist on that land before it became built. So we're seeing uh, the beginnings of that. But over time, you know, once upon a time, green building certification or getting a, your building certified was headline news. We're the first commercial office building or the tallest commercial office building or the the first, uh, you know, lead gold hairdresser west of the Mississippi. Everybody had their claim, and we write those stories. Now we don't write stories anymore, as you well know, Heather, about you know a building getting green certification. We're now writing stories about net zero buildings, but even that's starting to become oldish news. I mean, we'll we'll be covering that for a while, but in a year, two years, certainly within three or four years we will be writing a lot about restorative buildings and, frankly, restorative businesses. And, and as, as I hinted, the thing that fascinates me about that is that so much of that will be tied to technology, right? Because all of those decisions can't be made by humans. 
And it's going to be the systems in those buildings, the sensors, the, the technology in the windows, in the, do in the doors, in the walls, in the ceilings that help um, that building adapt. And it won't be just humans that, that make that happen. So let's move over to another topic that we covered this week that's um, frankly one of those uh, Groundhog Day topics for me. And <laughs> that's shipping pallets. Uh, is a piece by Roger Ballantyne and Adam Penner, I guess, or Penner, I don't know how to pronounce it. Sorry, Adam. Uh, from Green Ox Pallet Technology is, is Adam, and Roger Ballantyne's an old friend of mine. He runs a consultancy called Green Strategies, talking about, well, first of all, getting right into the fact that, uh, you know, maybe sustainability should be a little bit more boring. And uh, despite all the commitments about things like we've just been talking about, net zero buildings and 100% renewable energy commitments and zero waste, maybe we should be you know, getting down to the nitty gritty. And, and there is this lowly shipping pallet, 10 billion loaded wood pallets are shipped to the United States alone every year. That's uh, according to this article. And the wooden ones, which are most of them, which weigh about 50 pounds and take a you know, decent chunk of a tree to make, uh, are used often used once and then tossed in a pile. And you know there are alternatives uh, like corrugated pallets, like uh, reusable pallets made from recycled plastic, and and so on. And you know, uh, it, it's this one of those things that I wrote about. I hate to say, twenty five years ago, <laughs> back when I was public. No, seriously, back when I was publishing a monthly newsletter called the Green Business Letter, what I now refer to as a dead tree snail mail newsletter. Um, I wrote a piece about this, about wood pallets. In fact, I, there was a great statistic uh, that I'm going to get almost right, but this is from the 90s around General Motors as part of their zero waste initiatives. Uh, banishing, even back then, was banishing wood pallets from their supply chain and say you need to use a, either a corrugated pallet, which we can uh, recycle, put back into the corrugated waste stream, or a uh, plastic pallet that can be used multiple times. And by doing so, they were going to be saving $100,000 in disposal fees and earning uh, I think $40,000 in selling the cardboard into the, into the spot market. $140,000 every business day from pallets. And so, you know, this is, I don't know if they're still doing that. I've, I've heard things that they've, you know, backtracked on some of these things. In fact, GM has written about in, in this piece a little bit. And it says that some of this program ended about uh, seven years ago. But this is one of those areas that why the heck are we still doing it? the way we've always done it. Mm -hmm. and, and this is also one of those areas where the supply chain cooperation is so important because one of the points the article makes is, you know, here, here you've got these, these uh, consumer products companies that are saying, we want to do this and we want to work with our supply chain and that yet they're being forced to ship on wood pallets, right? Some of them are just being forced to do so. They don't have a choice. And until that gets changed, they won't necessarily be able to move forward on that. And of course, you do have the naysayers and, and the trade-offs, right? You know, the, there are impacts related to the corrugated cardboard, the things that are the alternative. But I loved this boring story. I read it. I thought, wow, that's great. You know, I just, we need to re remember that it, it's the hard, the everyday things that, that make sustainability so exciting and so operationally profound, right, for an organization. That's why this has to be beyond just the, the, the person with the sustainability in their title. You need to get everyone involved. It needs to be a day-to-day -day decision. And that's why you and I do what we do for a living. So Joel, the 30 under 30 is out. It's done. It's awesome. And we have gotten such a, a, a wonderful response. The, the, uh, Traffic on this report has been amazing. I love the excitement that, that the honorees have uh, been generating on social media. I, for one, was so excited to meet uh, a number of these individuals on the phone, of course. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited about the response. I'm proud of this list. And it's been a great week for us. Yeah, I guess we kind of buried the lead this week, what with all the uh, international intrigue going on. But uh, yeah, we published our 30 Under 30, and we were 
honoring 30 up-and-coming young sustainable business professionals, and it's so gratifying. And so what we thought we'd do is uh, this week, and we'll probably do some more next week, uh, just play, because we interviewed all of them and uh, recorded those and uh, interviews just in, for the purpose of doing the write-up, but also just to hear some of their voices. So we're going to play three clips right now. Um, the first is from Kamal Ahmad, who's uh, the CEO of Copia. Here's Kamal. Started what is now Copia a little over five years ago when I was a student at Berkeley and I encountered a homeless man begging for food. And something about him compelled me to stop and invite him to join me for lunch. And in between bites, he shared a story. He said, My name is John. I just came back from my second tour in Iraq. I've been waiting weeks for my VA benefits to kick in. And because they haven't, you know, I haven't eaten in three days. And you can imagine three whole days without food. And then adding insult to injury right across the street, Berkeley's dining hall is throwing away thousands of pounds of perfectly edible food. And what I realized is that this is emblematic of a much larger problem, and that's that every day in America, over 365 million pounds of perfectly edible food is wasted. And while that's happening, one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. So clearly it's not a lack of food that's the issue. It's just an inefficient distribution of that food. That logistics problem that we went off to solve. We started the nation's first food recovery organization on a college campus. So we're recovering food from our dining halls, our on-campus events, our stadium, our arena, and then redistributing that food directly within our community. And it was a great start, just hugely inefficient. But I remember thinking, you know what, how much more effective and efficient this would be if those who have food could say, hey, we have food, and those in need of food could say, hey, we could use that food, and we could match these two people and clear the marketplace. Essentially what we built is Utopia. And so mm-hmm. we started off by building, you know, a technology platform that was built to address the issues of hunger. And now we've, over the last five years, scaled that to also address the issues of food waste. And so we're essentially a scalable technology platform that is built to solve both the issues of hunger and food waste. And we're mm-hmm. on our way to feeding a million people. The opportunities are huge, right? We've received over 60,000 requests for global expansion, so from so as far as Germany and Austria who say, you know, we want to license this platform, we want to bring Copia here to help mm-hmm. redistribute food and other resources to the Syrian mm-hmm. migrants. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a use case I could never have even possibly imagined. And, you know, I just got back from New Orleans and you think about Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Sandy. I mean, there's so many resources that people need uh, that, you know, there's no lack of. It's just an ineffective distribution of it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you think about food. Food is the most perishable resource there is. And once right. we figure out that, we can use the same type of technology, the same type of platform to help redistribute books, clothing, mm-hmm. medicine, medical supplies. Next up is, um, forgive me if I get this name, mangled this name, but Kavikumar Muruganathan, who's the uh, head of CSR Asia, talking about his work. It's a field that not many people have a good understanding and a clear understanding about. And I think people always see sustainability as issues just to do with the environment, which is not true. So there are also other social and and economic issues to deal with. Uh, Sustainability is challenging because I think uh, when it comes to sustainability, there are many stakeholders involved. It will take time. So sustainability is not something that will happen overnight. I think that's something that people need to realize. And it takes a lot of effort, not just from the organization, but the stakeholders to support a organization in its sustainability journey. I want to be in this field. I think five years from now, from now, I I hope to actually be able to influence more people, and also probably be in a position where I can effect more change. It could be within an organization or within a uh, government sector where we can actually where I can actually contribute to uh, have more change and more impact in what. Uh, in sustainability. So I think five years from now, I still want to be here and I want to still continue playing a more proactive role in sustainability and actually influencing more people to see value in sustainability. And last up is Rita Kamani from FarmDrive. FarmDrive is a company based in Kenya that is using alternative data and machine learning to do credit scoring for smallholder farmers. I grew up in a smallholder farming community here in Kenya, a rural farming community in Kenya. And it's really drawing from my 
experience or my background where I grew up from that um, uh, created the interest in building solutions that solve some of the challenges I saw growing around me, uh, my family and uh, community facing firsthand. And um, it happens that uh, some of these challenges are really similar, similar challenges that um, smallholder farming communities across Africa and um, other parts of the world actually face. So really it's that background of having grown up, seeing some of these challenges and wanting to do something about it that drove me um, into the work I'm doing currently in sustainability. So that uh, combined with my academic background, I'm a computer scientist. So I, I saw technology as a tool that could uh, I could use to solve some of these challenges these big sustainability challenges are things that, one, you cannot solve overnight. It takes time for you to solve this, but we have to always uh, celebrate the small wins. For instance, uh, I'd say in my case, in Kenya alone, there are 7 million smallholder farmers. In Africa, there are over 50 million smallholder farmers. So far, we've, we've, uh, we have about 3,000 farmers that we are working with. So when you think about the absolute number, then it feels like such a drop in the ocean. So... It's just acknowledging that it takes quite a bit of time to tackle some of these sustainability challenges and really requires patience from the team that is doing this, from the partners that are helping you achieve that. Achieve that. For me, I really look forward to, can we achieve in the next five years that smallholder farmers in this region have the resources they need for them to actually live lives of dignity and have um, enough to feed their family to live decent lives. And before we end this topic, uh, let me do one more clip. I thought I'd call uh, a friend of mine, Jill Lenartz, who was a 30 under 30 honoree last year, our, our initial year, to hear what she had to say uh, one year later, sort of reflections um, about what it meant uh, to be a 30 under 30 and sort of what happened afterwards. So I started off asking her that question. What did it mean to you uh, to be named a 30 under 30? That's a great question. And and you know my history, how I got to this point, the, the path that I've been through to get here. And I think in the first word that comes to mind with what it meant to me personally was validation. It was It was being noticed. I, I think I did share with you a story once. My partner is Canadian and, and he messaged me. He said, I'm in the Edmonton airport. There's a group of uh, undergraduates who are going through the 30 under 30 list. And he said, you, you could sense the excitement in the text as they were coming in. He said, oh, then, and they got to this person and, and they're doing this. Oh my gosh, they love you <laughs> as they arrived at mine. And he was just like, they're like, she, was, she did NASA funded research. She did this. And I mean, I think honestly seeing the reaction from other young people, and they were sustainability students, um, seeing the reaction from other young people going, uh, I can do that too? I What? And it's something for them to shoot for. It's, it's another bit of motivation. Um, and I'm all about reaching back to try and pull people forward along with me. And so that meant quite a bit to me. So identifying as a 30 under 30 was a bit of a no-brainer because the second you say that, if no one knows that it exists, they know that it does. And that's something that they can achieve as well. What happened uh, in your company? Anything uh, as a result of, of being named 30 under 30? Well, there was, there was a lot of backslapping and a lot of kudos, <laughs> uh, which, which was phenomenal. Um, my team is extremely supportive. I have noticed that I don't know if it's just me achieving it on my own, but with the 30 under 30 uh, backing me or, or the re that recognition backing me, there's an understanding that I know what I'm talking about. There's a little more trust behind that. So if I say we need to be doing X, Y, Z, or can we do this? I'm given the agency to go and do that myself and then report back. It's not like someone needs to be watching me or I need to check in. It's just, oh yeah, you know what you're doing. Just go. That's great. What would you recommend to this year's crop of uh, 30 under 30 in terms of how to leverage the, the moment um, and maybe even what not to do? I, I was big on social media, you know, putting it out on LinkedIn, putting it on Twitter, um, excitedly 
retweeting everything Green Bids did or said. And um, of course, my parents doing the same. Hi, mom and dad. Um, <laughs> the, the thing that I would be a little careful about is maybe letting it get to your head. Um, I know no one in my class did that at all. Everyone was very gracious about it. Um, but it's, it's very easy if you are recognized at this level, and especially this year, because you've opened it up to, to the global audience. It's very easy to say, look at me, I'm the best of the best. And I'm, I'm sure no one would be thinking of that, but it's, it's always good to try and be a little gracious, especially as a millennial, because we're always seen as um, being a little entitled, being a little attention grabbing. And um, it's, it's, a, it's somewhat difficult to try and balance being very proud of yourself um, with how it might be perceived, depending on what people think about your age group. What would you like to see 30 Under 30 become in terms of uh, beyond uh, a, an article in Green Biz once a year? Is there, is there more that we could do here or what are your thoughts? It's a fantastic question because I've, I've written uh, a piece for Green Biz that, that's up on there right now um, about what the next steps could be in order to harness the youth perspective when it comes to sustainability. Uh, it's, it's an interesting marriage because sustainability isn't exclusively a youth value, but it seems like um, as, as the generations progress, it's something that is really driving a lot of purchasing decisions, a lot of business decisions. So integrating a youth perspective into strategy uh, determinations and, and decision-making processes as well as sustainability is, it, it has the potential to be quite helpful for business. So it just it's kind of a bang for your buck thing if you take a 30 under 30 where they both they have both the youth perspective and the sustainability chops and then include them in decision making processes. So I've I've written about a, a few options or ideas to get the conversation started. They are certainly not the end all and be all and I'm not saying everyone needs to do these and I've, of course, strategically listed them from most ambitious to least ambitious. <laughs> uh, but I would, I would love to see the 30 under 30 included in business conversations in various ways. Um, within Green Biz, it would be phenomenal um, to just make a seat at the table. That's, that's the easiest way to get input and get people involved and, and get the voices of the 30 under 30 out there, whether it's at a conference or meetings bring a seat to the table um, for, for a 30 under 30 or a younger professional. Um, it's, it's as easy as that. Well, it sounds like you've already got a seat at the table at, in part at CA Technologies and part here at GreenBiz. So thank you for that. Congratulations on just a great continued success in your career. And um, thanks for, for sharing some thoughts with us. Uh, Jill Lenartz, Principal Corporate Social Responsibility at CA Technologies. Thanks, Jill. Thank you very much. Anytime. This episode is sponsored by NRG, bringing simplicity to a complex energy world by giving customers greater control, added resilience, and lower costs. For more information, please visit nrg.com greenbiz. This is Anya Hallemeiser, Associate Editor at GreenBiz, and I'm here with Sean Dean Cedar, our Sales and Marketing Assistant, who this week published a very interesting perspective from millennials to the world on why world leaders should ignore Donald Trump's message and continue on its path towards decarbonization and the transition to a low-carbon economy. Shandine, you've written for Green Biz before, and you always have a welcome and fresh perspective. I'd love to know what inspired you to write this letter to the world. Thanks, Anya, and uh, thanks for having me on again. So I basically wanted to write this piece because I was feeling a lot of emotions after the announcement on Thursday, basically feeling kind of irritated that we were giving up yet another leadership position on the world stage, um, and especially a position that's so critical to our future. 
and to the well-being of everyone on the planet. Um, so I knew that a lot of analysis was already being done on his decision and state and local governments here in the United States to kind of unify and continue on with, with the Paris targets. But young people like myself, millennials, they really don't have a voice in this. And, you know, there are other writers out there and other people that are representing us, but uh, I, I, I just wanted to kind of speak out for my generation on, on this important issue. So from a fellow millennial, I also think it's very important for us to share our unique perspective, especially working here at GreenBiz and seeing you know the newsroom, the behind the scenes of the corporate decision making that goes into um, this transition to, to clean energy towards circular economy. And one of the issues that we uh, discussed recently on GreenBiz was the shareholder activist a decision that is going to hopefully push Exxon towards more disclosure and transparency in its uh, climate decision making. And Chandine, I know you had uh, some personal experience as being a, one of the shareholder activists. How did it make you feel when you got the opportunity to be part of its history? Yes, so a little backstory on this. Um, my mom's side of the family um, is from Texas, and my grandfather actually worked for Exxon in Dallas, and that's why we have investments in um, Exxon in the first place, um, which is kind of ironic that I'm such an environmental activist and I don't really believe in what they're doing, but I kind of took the opportunity to this time vote and participate in that, which which I actually have never done. I didn't really um, think about it before, and, and I'm really glad I had the opportunity um, to get my proxy and read through um, their description. And it's kind of interesting, when you get the proxy vote, there's indicators on each line item, each proposal, that basically the board suggests their opinion. So it says the board is against this. And I thought that was um, really interesting. So yeah, thanks to the New York State Common Retirement Fund, who owns uh, more than 11 million shares, that they're the they're the people that suggested this resolution, and their analysis basically they have to explain why they're putting forward this proposal, and it's basically um, their basic ar argument was that the proposal should anal analyze the impacts of ExxonMobil's oil and gas reserves and resources under the scenario. Um, which there's a reduction in oil demand. So in ExxonMobil's 10K, it actually recognizes that there's a number of countries that are basically divesting from oil. Even ExxonMobil's peers have identified climate change as a threat and have started reporting on it. So this proposal um, was basically saying, hey, you know, this is actually good for ExxonMobil to be doing this. And the, the board recommended to vote against it and 62%. It's pretty amazing that that passed with that big of a margin. Did you have to read all the way down th through the document before you came to this, uh, to, to the climate change portion, or was this uh, pretty prominent and, uh, you know, at the forefront of the decision making in this particular investor uh, stock take? So I believe that it, it just goes in order, but I don't know if it signifies its importance. It was the second to last item on the agenda. And the last one, it's interesting also, I don't think anyone else has talked about this, is there was a similar proposal to report on methane ambitions that did not pass. But So that was the last resolution. Now that you have become somewhat of a regular GreenBiz contributor, what kind of advice can you give to young people who um, are working or want to work in environment and, and climate um, and want to lend their voice to the conversation. My advice would be to use whatever platform is readily available to you and to speak up. Um, as I say in my article, you know, we are the next in line to deal with these issues. Why I wrote the article is to reach out to our world leaders and allies to give them a heads up that we are, you know, we're still young, we're still learning, but we are your next allies. And so my advice would be just speak up in your workplaces, in your personal lives, on, on Facebook, Twitter, whatever you have, um, just, you know, you do have a voice in this. 
So now that you've had a chance to weigh in, Chandine, do you feel like you're going to hold on to the shares um, when you're of age or are you going to, to sell them? That's a great question. Um, I actually do not foresee myself holding on to the shares for very much longer. Um, that said, I mean, this has been an interesting process and um, maybe I will consider joining a larger shareholder activist group for Exxon and maybe that makes sense. Um, I haven't fully decided yet. I'd, I'd really like to divest my money though. Fair enough, but who thought that you'd actually be part of, uh, be part of history and actually what's going on in front page news right now? So thank you so much for lending your voice, Shandine. It was great to have you. Thank you for having me. One of the visitors to the Green Biz office this week was Angela Conert, who's a Vice President of Government and External Affairs for BMW Group based up the road in Sacramento. Had a really interesting conversation, and Angela, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the, the partnership, the involvement that BMW has going on in Seattle around urban mobility. Give us sort of the snapshot. Hello, yes. Um, as part of our ongoing strategy for involvement with city representatives, we have a number of projects going on. One is Hamburg and the other one is Seattle, where we proactively talk to cities and city representatives and come up with a design for the city of the future and develop milestones and services that cities of the future need and in partnership with other partners and the city officials design the future uh, setup of the city and how mobility could look like 20, 30 years down the road. So this isn't just uh, BMW in Seattle, there's others at the table. Who's involved with this and who, who pulled this all together? Um, we are part of the C40 partnership and uh, Seattle is one member of the C40 partnership and BMW is part of the solutions platform and we are proactively looking for um, examples where we can engage with cities and demonstrate change and uh, really bring um, new initiatives off the ground, not just talking about the future but actually making it happen. So give me an example of some of the kinds of initiatives that you're talking about. So, for instance, in Hamburg, we have been liaising with the city officials on the introduction of more electric cars into our um, Drive Now fleet, the free-floating car-sharing scheme, and together with the city, we decided on the right, or we discussed the right ratio of electric vehicles and charging station, and we have just recently, last month, announced the, um, the introduction of more electric cars into our fleet, and the city is providing a lot more charging infrastructure that can be used for Drive Now customers, but also by uh, private individuals who are not driving the Drive Now vehicles. And with regards to Seattle, it's a multi-stakeholder platform where all the partners that need to be around the table to um, decide or discuss on mobility issues, congestion, traffic management, are part of the discussion. It's a whole and inclusive approach. So uh, these are other companies, uh, NGOs, besides this, you and the city government? Um, yes, there are um, there are a number of NGOs involved, yes, as well, but most importantly, all the officials of the city that make sure that mobility runs smoothly around the city. And as it's all steered and managed by C40, uh, who run similar projects with other cities around the world. So what's the business opportunity here from BMW? I'm guessing that like a lot of uh, West Coast cities, you sell quite a number of, of BMW and mini vehicles uh, in Seattle already. What's the opportunity you see beyond that? We consider cities like Seattle to be on the forefront of change in the future when it comes to mobility. And we want to engage with cities like Seattle and learn about their thinking about their strategies. So for us, it's a, to one extent a learning opportunity because as a company, we need to transition from a traditional car manufacturer to a mobility service provider. And of course, working closely with cities um, who are at the front of change is important in making sure that we are aligned to the, yeah, to the needs of cities in the future because most of our customers are based in the urban areas. So if this works, then what you're doing there around vehicle sharing and other initiatives may be coming to a city near you? 
Well, we have a center of competence for urban mobility based in Munich, and this is a team of people that engage with cities around the world with a focus on Europe at the moment, but increasingly also international, that work with cities and uh, develop um, ideas on how cities will look like in the future, and of course, feeding that back into the company, into the strategy departments, so that service offerings and product offerings can be aligned with the needs of cities in the future. Great. Well, it sounds interesting. We'll look forward to keeping in touch and learning more about it. Uh, Angela Conard, Vice President, Government and External Affairs at BMW Group of North America. Thanks so much for stopping by GreenBiz. Thank you very much for the opportunity. In my role as editorial director, I'm involved with shaping the content for our Verge events, our two annual conferences focused on where technology meets sustainability. We are just one week out from the Verge Hawaii event, the Asia Pacific Clean Energy Summit, and I spent a lot of time prepping for my sessions this week. One that I am really excited about is on the opening day. The theme is how climate change creates local opportunities. And it features the mayor of Maui County, a commissioner from the Hawaii Public Utilities Commission, and a senior advisor from the Paulson Institute, a research think tank. As we mentioned earlier in the episode, Hawaii actually this week became the first state to enact legislation that aligns it with the goals of the Paris Agreement. And as I prepped for the panel, it was really clear and and refreshing to hear the participants talk about quantifiable and viable economic benefits of supporting low carbon technologies and policies, such as those that will be inspired by the Paris Agreement. I'm also running a breakout focused on transportation technologies called the future of mobility on islands. Cities around the world are studying autonomous vehicles, alternative fuel options, and ride sharing models all with a view to cutting emissions without blowing local budgets. Islands have special limitations, ones that often make traditional fuel costs much higher. They also have special advantages. Debates about fueling infrastructure aren't quite as constrained by the same range anxiety issues that crop up on the mainland. To prep for my panel, I chatted in depth with one of the participants, Matt Horton, the Chief Commercial Officer of Proterra, which sells electric buses which incidentally it manufactures in the United States. The company has sold more than 400 of its vehicles in California, of course, but also to cities such as Dallas, Nashville, and Philadelphia. Here's what Matt Horton had to say about the economic case driving adoption. Cities all over the country are adopting electric heavy-duty transit vehicles at record rates for a few simple reasons. One of them is that the economics are simply better for battery electric vehicles. Uh, We are replacing the least efficient vehicles on the road. A diesel bus gets about four miles a gallon with some of the most efficient vehicles. Ours gets about 22 miles per gallon equivalent. So there's a tremendous fuel savings associated with making the move to electric. These vehicles drive on average about 40,000 miles a year. So they get a lot of usage and again, rack up incredible fuel savings over that, that uh, usage. And then the other thing is the maintenance savings are very significant. Uh, traditional transit buses are very ineffective uh, and inefficient and have huge maintenance costs associated with them. Uh, so the combination of saved maintenance cost and saved fuel cost uh, is really uh, tilting the economics toward clean, quiet, zero emission vehicles. While passenger cars get a lot of the attention, the heavy-duty transit sector is going to electrify far faster, and it also happens to be uh, a transportation fleet that is generally totally in the control of the city. So the wave of a wand can uh, mandate that all of those heavy-duty diesel polluting buses in their city will be on their way out, and they'll be replaced by quiet, clean, zero-emission buses. So that's, I'd say, one, one of the biggest reasons why it's moving so quickly is that it really is something that is directly in the control of cities. A typical city will uh, do an RFP about every five years. They'll effectively commit five years worth of buses at a time. Uh, they don't have to follow through with those, uh, those later year commitments. Uh, and we've been successful in undoing some of those for 
that were scheduled for fossil fuel buses. But uh, there is a very predictable cycle in the procurement of these transit vehicles, which for us is why it makes it so urgent that we make real headway into the market today. Uh, Because unfortunately, there are still cities in America that are making new purchases of diesel buses. And that means they're probably not going to buy anything else for another five years. And even worse, once you put a diesel bus into service, it generally will be on the road for at least 12 years. So again, you're locking in all of the cost of the diesel fuel and all of the emissions for at least 12 years. There, there are big regional differences in terms of the emissions profile uh, associated with the charging of these vehicles. But it's, it's really important to note that even you know, using a more traditional fossil fuel powered source of energy you know, in an electric vehicle, electric vehicles use about 80% less energy to start with. So when you're comparing even a, a relatively dirty grid to you know, burning fossil fuels directly into a vehicle, you're using far less of that uh, fossil fuel energy to power an electric vehicle per mile. So that's the most important thing you can do. If, if you had nothing but fossil fuels would be to use them to create electricity and then use a lot less to actually move your vehicles around. Um, what we're really encouraged with is that the grid across the country and across the world is greening fairly rapidly. And as fossil fuel sources get dirtier and dirtier, whether it's you know, tar sands or you know, fracking for gas, you know, that, that mix will get worse while we're seeing the opposite happen on the electricity side where renewables are, are becoming a larger uh, contributor to the grid. Be sure to check The Verge Hawaii schedule on the Green Biz website. You can watch the live stream of all main stage sessions and watch for our editorial coverage both before and after the event. I'm Heather Clancy. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll find more about the organizations, stories, and events that we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks, as always, to our podcast director, Stephanie Joyce. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to get your comments, story ideas, and other things. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. This episode is sponsored by NRG, where energy solutions take many forms, including NRG energy centers that provide efficient and reliable heating and cooling to downtown business districts and hundreds of customers. For more information, please visit nrg.com greenbiz.